The first of my posts to the Facebook group about chapters 8 through 14 of the Kreutzer Sonata was a focused summary. According to Poznashev, life in the upper classes is simply a brothel, and marriage is no more than a trap. He describes with contempt the way in which the upper classes have scornfully thrown off the tradition of arranged marriages and replaced it with the novel invention of treating women like slaves in a bazaar. What is worse, he says, this shameful trap-laying and husband-catching is done deceitfully, behind a pretense of equality and betterment for women. If prearranged marriages are degrading, he says, this is a thousand times worse. Then he makes the ironic assertion that it is precisely this degrading practice that has given rise to the domination by women from which the world suffers. Just as the Jews have paid back the world for their oppression by a financial domination, women are getting their revenge by enslaving men to their sensuality. The essential inequality suffered by woman, he says, is not that she is deprived of the right to vote or to be a judge, but that she is not allowed to choose a man and is instead chosen by him. So she twists this abasement into a special power, using man's sensuality to catch him in a net, and then sentencing him to hard labor to satisfy her caprices. A lady dressed up for a ball used to make Poznashev uncomfortable and uneasy. Now he sees her as something dangerous and frightening. He has come to believe that nothing threatens social tranquility as much as a woman adorning her body to evoke sensuality, and that as such, more than gambling or other illicit practices, it should be illegal. He then tells of the false pride he felt when he became engaged, imagining himself the height of moral perfection. Others married for money or connections. Others married with the intention of continuing their polygamous lifestyles. He married a poor woman to whom he would be faithful, and he congratulated himself for his goodness. He then describes with hindsight the way in which the lie of love as a spiritual communion was exposed in their engagement. If love is spiritual, it should find expression in words. But finding something to talk about was, for them, the labor of Sisyphus. Once they had thought of something and said it, they had to struggle to devise something else. To be animals would have been preferable. Then speech would not be necessary. Additionally, all the preparations for the wedding, the house, the costumes, the trousseau, etc., show that, quote, the whole business is only that. They show that it is a kind of sale, unquote. That, he says, is how he married, and the, quote, much-vaunted honeymoon began, unquote. In reality, it was awkward, shameful, and intolerably dull but like one who has been suckered into squandering his money to see the bearded lady at a circus, he felt compelled to perpetuate the lie. Not anymore. He describes the consummation of their marriage as something horrid, painful, and contrary to popular opinion, entirely unnatural. Our narrator then asks the question that readers of this story have echoed for generations. If everyone were to accept the view that sex is shameful and unnatural, then how would the human race continue? 
Poznashev does not evade this apparent reductio ad absurdum of his views, but confronts it directly, embraces it even. How would it continue? Why should it continue, he says. If the aim of humanity is righteousness, and to be righteous is to be united together in love, then the single most powerful hindrance to this aim is the sex passion. So, if in the pursuit of that aim, the sex passion is destroyed, quote, the aim of existence will be attained, and there will be nothing further to live for, unquote. To achieve goodness, that which would perpetuate the human race must be denied. But to achieve goodness is to make the perpetuation of the human race unnecessary. But far from a time of continence and a striving for goodness, the honeymoon is a period of licensed debauchery that, now unsurprisingly to Poznashev, left his wife depressed. Then a pattern began of cruel quarrels and redistilled sensuality, all of which concealed an abyss between them, a cold hostility, a selfish solitude. Their marriage, like all marriages, was characterized by a mutual hatred concealed by amorousness. All married people, he says, share this fate, and they are all under the delusion that it is their peculiar misfortune. The bitterness they felt, he says, was the protest of their human nature over the animal nature that had overpowered it, the mutual hatred of accomplices in a crime. And it was a crime still more abhorrent that the swinish connection between them continued after she was pregnant and nursing. Observing animals, we can see that nature dictates that a woman leave off from physical love when she is pregnant or nursing, but man directly violates the laws of nature to get as much pleasure as he can. That, Poznashev says, is what is destroying women, turning them into hysterics, epileptics, and cripples, forcing her into this filthy, apish occupation when it is most contrary to her nature, and worse, exalting it in the name of love. Poznashev expands on the pretenses surrounding women in society. Despite all the talk about a new kind of education for women, despite all the chivalrous declarations of worship, despite calls for women to occupy a position of equality, in reality, women continue to be regarded as mere instruments of enjoyment. The only thing, he says, that will bring about meaningful change is, quote, a change in men's outlook on women and women's way of regarding themselves, unquote. Short of that, they will always be humiliated and depraved slaves. The next of my posts to the Facebook group was called A Few Takeaways. I thought I'd shine a spotlight on a few ideas buried within the neurotic rantings of this brilliant madman that captivated my interest. My shorthand for the first is, my lily is mad on music. This is the idea of intellectual pursuits as a means of making a woman interesting to men, rather than reflecting her own sincere personal interests. Here's the scene that captures this idea in the Kreutzer Sonata. Quote, Tell any mother, or the girl herself, the truth, that she is only occupied in catching a husband? Oh dear, what an insult! Yet they all do it and have nothing else to do. 
what is so terrible is to see sometimes quite innocent poor young girls engaged on it. And again, if it were but done openly, but it is always done deceitfully. Ah, the origin of species, how interesting! Oh, Lily takes such an interest in painting. And will you be going to the exhibition? How instructive! And the troika drives, and the shows, and symphonies. Oh, how remarkable! My Lily is mad on music. And why don't you share these convictions? And boating. But their one thought is, Take me, take me, take my Lily, or try at least. Unquote. This reminds me of a scene from the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice. Caroline Bingley is discussing what earns a woman the right to be called accomplished. She says, quote, A woman must have a thorough knowledge of music, singing, drawing, dancing, and the modern languages to deserve the word. And besides all this, she must possess a certain something in her air and manner of walking. The tone of her voice, her address and expressions, or the word will be but half deserved." Unquote. Of course, the goal of being accomplished is one universally acknowledged. She must be in want of a husband. Darcy then adds that, quote, she should also improve her mind through extensive reading, unquote, at which point Lizzie slams her book shut. She reads neither to be called accomplished nor to snare a husband. She reads because she likes to read. And that is precisely what makes Lizzie an iconically admirable character. Her values are entirely her own. The next idea is one I captured as the lesser rascal. This is the idea of measuring oneself not in absolute terms, but by a comparative moral standard. Here's the relevant scene from the Kreutzer Sonata. Quote, you know there is no rascal who cannot, if he tries, find rascals in some respects worse than himself, and who consequently cannot find reasons for pride and self-satisfaction. So it was with me. I was not marrying for money. Covetousness had nothing to do with it, unlike the majority of my acquaintances, who married for money or connections. I was rich. She was poor. That was one thing. Another thing I prided myself on was that while others married intending to continue in future the same polygamous life they had lived before marriage, I was firmly resolved to be monogamous after marriage, and there was no limit to my pride on that score. Yes, I was a dreadful pig and imagined myself to be an angel. Unquote. Setting aside the particulars of Tolstoy's moral standards, I found this concept fascinating. The idea, not of striving for moral goodness, but of contenting oneself with being less morally bad than others, of taking pride in the fact that you are less depraved than your peers. I racked my brain for a classic example of such a character, and even tried crowdsourcing the question, because I feel certain that it exists as a definite type. I know it does in reality, and if it doesn't in fiction, it certainly should. I also feel certain that we would find him in Dostoevsky, who seems to have captured an endless and colorful catalog of psychological types. So, for now, let's be on the lookout for the lesser rascal. My shorthand for the third idea was the lie of the bearded woman. This is the idea of a universal misfortune that each regards with shame as unique to him, and so he lies about it 
to evade admitting his disgrace and to avoid disillusioning others. Here's the scene from the Kreutzer Sonata. Quote, In Paris, I once went to see the sights, and noticing a bearded woman and a water dog on a signboard, I entered the show. It turned out to be nothing but a man in a woman's low-necked dress, and a dog done up in a walrus skin and swimming in a bath. It was very far from being interesting. But as I was leaving, the showman politely saw me out, and addressing the public at the entrance, pointed to me and said, "'Ask the gentleman whether it is not worth seeing. Come in, come in, one franc apiece.' I felt ashamed to say it was not worth seeing, and the showman had probably counted on that. It must be the same with those who have experienced the abomination of a honeymoon, and who do not disillusion others. I did not know then that it is our common fate, but that everybody imagines, just as I did, that it is their peculiar misfortune. And everyone conceals this exceptional and shameful misfortune not only from others, but even from himself." and does not acknowledge it to himself." Unquote. Again, Tolstoy's version of this idea, that the honeymoon is inevitably sordid and dull, is pathologically cynical. Nevertheless, I was struck by the more general psychological insight, and the way he starkly captured it with the analogy of the bearded lady. Because this error can have serious consequences. We all face the danger of psychological role-playing of expressing the emotional reactions we think we should have, rather than the ones we do, and to suppress and disconnect from the reality of our emotional responses is to bury one's real self under layers of falsehood, and to prevent oneself from facing important truths. Having read the brothers Karamazov, Crime and Punishment, and Notes from Underground, I have come to think of Dostoevsky as the master of psychological transparency. Many of his characters alternately struggle to evade and then candidly face all the twisted machinations of their complex and often perverse psychologies. That alone is a reason for you to read Dostoevsky with me. The last of my posts to the Facebook group was called Tolstoy's Marriage Proposal. I thought I would interrupt this dark story with a happy one that I discovered years ago when I was researching Tolstoy the seemingly impossible story of his proposal to his wife, Sophia. Here it is, as told by Arthur Stanley Turberville in his Tolstoy biography. Quote, While seated at the card table, Tolstoy wrote in chalk on the bays these letters, L-Y-F-E-F-I-A-T-M-A-Y-S-L-Y-A-T-M-D-I. How in the world Miss Sophia was able to unravel this mystery and to interpret the writing passes comprehension, even allowing that a very ardent love quickened a naturally vivacious intelligence. But we are told that she speedily divined the meaning. In your family exists a false idea as to me and your sister Liza. You and Tanichka must destroy it. When Miss Sophia had indicated her comprehension of the force of these letters, Tolstoy wrote again, Y-Y-A-D-F-H-R-M-T-V-O-M-A-A-A-T-I-O-H, which, being interpreted by the same lively imagination, ran as follows, 
Your youth and desire for happiness remind me too vividly of my advanced age and the impossibility of happiness. That impossibility, however, did not exist. The lovers understood one another, though no word was said. Tolstoy was now a daily visitor at the Bear's house, all the family confidently expecting him to propose for the hand of Liza, the eldest sister. He, however, made a formal proposal of marriage to Sophia on the 17th of September, her name day. She joyfully assented, but her father was at first terribly chagrined, for he did not like the younger daughter to be married first. At first he refused his consent, but the persistence of the lovers, of course, overcame his opposition." Unquote. Now, the end of Tolstoy and Sophia's story is not as happy, but we'll save that for another day. <laughs> 